Well, we're finding ourselves in week two of what will be a continuing study on looking at relationships and righteousness and romance. And I have uh, appreciated your uh, comments and appreciated your patience in the last week, especially as we kind of opened that subject up and raised a lot of questions, and I said it might take a few weeks to answer them, so thank you for that. We're going to begin unpacking it a little bit today. I came across an informal interview this last week that was very enlightening to me. Several girls were participating in this interview, and these girls were asked to finish this statement. I want a guy who... The first said this. This is from an 18-year-old from Washington. I want a guy who sincerely likes me and isn't playing mind games. My feelings aren't a game. I want a guy who isn't going to ditch me when he thinks he's got me. I want him to like me because I like him. I used to think that I wanted a cute guy, but now I realize that they're too cocky to think about anybody but themselves. (laughs) Another girl from Texas said this, I want a guy who doesn't care if you look like Godzilla on a bad hair day. Someone who is kind of funny and who realizes that no matter how many faults I have, his are probably worse. So he should learn to deal or bail. And hey, if he's hot, what can it hurt? From Pennsylvania, I, like a guy, I want a guy who likes me the way I am. I shouldn't have to be a different person just, to, just so someone will like me. And he needs to notice my feminine side a little. An occasional flower or teddy bear or even a hug is always welcome. It's just precious. <laughs> From South Carolina, I want a guy who is sensitive so that when I cry at movies, he won't make fun of me. I wonder how autobiographical that is about her relationships. I want a guy who can make me laugh no matter what mood I'm in. And if he can tell by one word I say, even if it's just high, how upset I am or whatever, I'll know always that he loves me. I want someone who is crazily in love with me and treats me like a princess. Not doing every little thing I say, but being there for me, needing me as much as I need him from Oregon. And lastly, I want a guy who can step up to the guideline for guys, who wouldn't be embarrassed if the girl you like isn't what all the other girls, guys think is is cute in a girl. And don't put me down when I enjoy what I enjoy. Watch your mouth and keep up your hygiene. How would you finish that, ladies? How would you finish that line? I want a guy who... I'm not going to ask for any volunteers to list that out, but all of us have a list kind of swirling around in our mind, right? And if you wrote out all that you wanted in that guy, I promise you that the Apostle Paul wouldn't qualify. Only Jesus would, and he's in heaven, and you can't have him right now. Not as a husband anyway, so be careful of your lists. Maybe you've heard this comparison by Bob Phillips, but it's insightful enough to hear again. The ideal husband, this is what every woman expects, okay? A very sensitive man, kind and understanding, truly loving. A very hardworking man, a man who keeps and helps around the, keeps house and helps around the house by washing dishes, vacuuming floors, and taking care of the yard. Honey, how am I doing? Anyway, um, someone who helps his wife raise the children. A man of emotional and physical strength. And a man who is as smart as Einstein, but looks like Robert Redford or Tom Cruise. That's what she wants. This is what she gets. He always takes her to the best restaurants, and someday he may even take her inside. He doesn't have any ulcers, but he gives them. Anytime he has an idea in his head, he has the whole thing in a nutshell. He's well known as a miracle worker. It's a miracle when he works. He supports his wife in the manner to which she was accustomed. He's letting her keep her job. I didn't write it. He's such a bore that even he bores you to death when he gives you a compliment. He has an occasional flash of silence that makes his conversation look brilliant. Well, Helen Keller was once asked this. Is there anything worse than blindness? It's a very insightful thing to ask someone who's blind. Is there anything worse than blindness? She said, oh yes, a person with sight but no vision. 
I think that captures in, a, in just a simple phrase what I see happening in so many of the romances and relationships that are happening in your age group today. There's very little vision. Lots of sight. Lots of insight. But by and large, it's the wrong sight. The problem with our vision regarding relationships is that we put way too much stock in the process, whether selfish or calculated, and way too little emphasis on the person. Now, I must confess, the last week I was pretty hard on the courtship model, and I promise you there's more to come. But I'll also be fairly hard as we go through this thing on the dating model as well. In fact, let me say at the very beginning, this is where we're going to end in, in several weeks. I don't even want to tell you how many weeks yet. Where we're going to end is this. The process is irrelevant if you're the right person. Whether you court or date or arrange, whatever you do, it doesn't matter if you're who you need to be and finding the right kind of person. So at the very beginning of the study, what we need to do is not study the romance and not study the relationships as much as we study the reality of who we need to be. Now, I firmly believe that the Scriptures teach that the man is the leader in a relationship. And because of that, we're going to start with us, men. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to uh, come in the next at least three weeks and uh, bring some notepad and some paper and a humble heart and a uh, calendar that you can put some prayer time on uh, after we spend some time in these texts. Because if it happens to you like it happened to me, I'm absolutely devastated. I was riding down this morning with Kim uh, after I've been studying all week and got up early this morning to go over it some more. And I just said, honey, I'm a, I, I, just, I don't want to preach. I don't want to teach. I just want to go somewhere and, and, and think about what an awful leader and an awful husband and an awful man and everything I am. And I was, just felt so convicted. And she encouraged me that I was okay. So I get to preach and I get to go home today, which is a good thing. She didn't say great. She said okay. So anyway, a little room for improvement in there. Well, what is it that makes a man the ultimate man? What is it, ladies, that you're looking for that you ought to look for? What is it that you could find that will keep you happy all the days of your life? And gentlemen, how can you be that man? How can you be the kind of man that inspires people around you toward godliness and Christ-likeness? How can you be the kind of man who can lead a woman in purity, lead a woman in her relationship with Christ, and lead a family as their priest before God Almighty? The Scriptures give us very clear answers on that. Last week we noticed that they don't tell us much of anything and how we should pursue someone of the opposite sex. However, they tell us a whole lot in the kind of person we need to be and the kind of person we need to find. In the next three weeks, let me give you an outline for the next three weeks, and we're only going to look at the first one today, okay? What I want us to do is to think about the reality and the recognition. For the men, you're looking at the reality of who you need to be. For the women, the recognition of hopefully what you want to find. And where we're going to go is this. We're going to look at the character of a man's life, the character of his life this morning. Next week, we're going to look at the chivalry of his leadership. Talk quite a bit next week about what true masculinity is biblically in the chivalry of his leadership. And then thirdly, in two weeks, we're going to look at the Christ-likeness of his love. So the character of his life, the chivalry of his leadership, the Christ-likeness of his love. And ladies, I want you to be able to evaluate a man's life, his leadership, and how he loves before you ever make any decision toward a romantic relationship with this brother. The issues then are preparation and becoming for us as men and evaluation and discernment for you as women. Some people spend more time thinking about what they want to be, what they want their major to be, which car to buy, and even what to get at the grocery store than they do who they're going to end up with for the next 50 or 60 years. And guys, how differently we think about this topic than girls. I didn't know how different until I was married and began to notice things. When you're a single guy, you think that working out and getting ripped will impress all the girls. And you walk by the mirror and go, wow, you come to a door and kind of turn sideways to just get yourself through. You flex those lats and walk around, hi, I've been working out, maybe you've noticed. You've got all that going, and then the girls go, that is so gross. You know, I'm flipping through ESPN, and, and they got the, the, the guys who are bodybuilders up there, and I go, look at the arms on the guy. Oh, that's gross. Yeah. Can I have another scoop of ice cream, please? 
Some guys think that getting and keeping a nice car is the way to attract a woman. What happens if it breaks, guys? What happens if she spills Coke on your new mats? I mean, come on. Is it, 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 girls, do you really go, Oh my, a nice car. It must house a nice man. A plus B equals C. And then you get into the car business and you start installing sound systems in your cars that you can hear for three blocks. And the guy, you know, he takes the girl out and he says, Honey, I don't want you to hear the music. I want you to feel it. (laughs) And then it comes the famous date night. You go to Blockbuster. You're roaming around. You say, Honey, let me. Let me pick the movie tonight. You get it. You get home. You plug it in. When animals kill and eat each other. And you're going, isn't this radical? This is awesome. Look at the blood. And she's going, what planet are you from? Guys, a little hint. One, let me step away from you. One thing I've learned in my marriage, go rent all of those movies, like The Ability of Sense. What's it called? Sense and Sensibility. What's her name? Amy or Emma or something? Emma? If you do... You're going to be a hit. I'm getting way too far. I'm telling you some tricks too early, so be careful. Well, what's the character of a man to be? What is a guy to be like? What should we shoot for, guys? I want us to look at a list, not that was conjured up by a group of women, not a list that was conjured up by a group of wise men. This is a list about a godly man's character, a righteous man's character that was penned by God Himself and the Holy Spirit. So take your Bibles and join me in Titus chapter 2. Again, we're looking at the character of a righteous man's life this morning. While you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about Titus. It's one of the three pastoral epistles. These were letters that Paul wrote to two men, First and Second Timothy, that was to Timothy, and Titus to Titus. He wrote these to help these pastors set in order the issues that were awry in the churches. He established a church at Crete and left Titus there to complete the organization as an overseer, elder, or pastor. And on Crete, there were several groups of Christians scattered here and there, but their organization was incomplete. We're not even sure that they were meeting together. But also, creeping in, Satan was trying to keep in step, and there were a lot of false teachers teaching wrong theology, and the result was that the standard of life and character was very little different from that of their unbelieving neighbors. What were the Cretans like? Look at chapter 1 for a second, in verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That was the reputation you had from living on the island of Crete. Yet there was a band of believers who had received the grace of God, believed and repented on the Lord Jesus Christ, and had come to faith and were scattered all around. And Titus was left there by Paul, who had evangelized, and said, Titus... Organize these people, oversee them in a local body, in a church. Especially at issue, though, was the character of these people and their integrity. Imagine the struggle they must have had. They didn't have a Bible like you and I do. All they had was a little teaching that Paul had given them, a fresh relationship with their Savior, and they were off to the races. Now Titus was to come and organize them. What kind of people? Liars, evil beasts, gluttons, these kind of people. Organize them together into some kind of assembly of believers to be a testimony to the rest of the island as well as to bring their character into line with the character of Christ. Well, when Paul told him this, he didn't leave him by himself. Just a little emphasis between the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy, written to Timothy emphasize the character and ministry and organization of the leaders of the church. It's very interesting and very important. Paul tells Timothy, this is how to organize the leadership of the church. But Titus is far different. The emphasis in Titus, after a brief address to the elders and leaders in the beginning, then the emphasis shifts to this is what to teach the people to be like. This is how you shepherd your flock. This is how to bring the people into conformity with the image of Christ. The intent of Paul here, then, is to raise the level of character of those sitting in the pews. So let's look at it together. Some qualities of a righteous man to both recognize and realize. Now, why those two words? Because you should recognize them in a man, if you're a woman, and you should realize them in your life, 
if you're a man. Qualities of a righteous man to realize and recognize. Now, let me say from the very beginning that these practical, char- practical characteristics are 100% impossible. We should close in prayer, right? You can't do what I'm about to tell you to do unless you've been bought with the price of Jesus Christ. If you try and attempt to adjust and modify your behavior according to this list, you're going to be exasperated, hypocritical, and a liar. Because you can't maintain this kind of character outside an identity with Christ. It's impossible. It's like telling a fish to get out of the water and develop legs and start walking around. It's against his entire existence and his nature. So what do you do? Do you try harder? Not really. Do you push a little more? No, not really. Do you put these on the uh, dash of your car and your bathroom mirror and look at them every day and say, I'm going to be that? Not really. Until you've made sure that your relationship with Christ is intact. We have to start there. Folks, we can't just start into this list and say, here's a great man to be, a great man to find, and treat that as you're going to go out and begin doing that this afternoon without saying that it begins with your relationship with Christ. If you're not saved, if you haven't been understood your sin and the substitution of Christ and submitted your life to Him, this is impossible. Now, if you have, this is the goal. This is the work out your salvation because God's working in this list with you. You say, well, you said it was impossible. Who's supposed to do this? You are. How do you do it? God does it through you. How do you work that out? I have no idea. Philippians 2 is a great insight when he tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do what the Scriptures say, for it's God at work within you doing the very thing that you want to do. So the place you begin is a desire. Do you have a desire, men, to be a righteous man? Do you have a desire to be a godly man? Not just a catchable man. Not just a man the girls want to look to and say, wow. But do you want to be a righteous man who stands right before God? And if so, then you can turn around and stand right before a woman. Let's look then in Titus. Start with verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, that's Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Now, the reason I'm starting at verse 1, we're not going to jump into verse 6. I want you to see the context here. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. That they, may, the older women, may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, verse 6, urge the young men. Stop right there. That word is used, young men is used from anybody from 12 to 40. It's the younger generation. It's anyone who's not 40 and above, which they considered elder quality men. So we all fit that category in our approach to this subject. Urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is above reproach, beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. It's a great list. I didn't write it. Neither did the girls in here, guys. God wrote it. Let's roll up our sleeves and jump in, okay? Let me give you an outline to follow with some tests, some kind of bullet points under that you can begin to address the reality in your own life and girls that will become also a recognition point, a recognition list, as it were, for a man's character. The first thing that he highlights in this passage is that you've got to have this, a depth of discipleship. One of the qualities a man should have is a depth of of discipleship. Now, where do you get this? This is from the context. That's why I read the whole thing. The whole purpose is Titus, in order to get the church in order, is to take the older godly men, hook them up with the younger immature men to bring them along. Urge there is parakaleo. It means to come alongside and strongly entreat someone both negatively and positively. That means you're getting in their kitchen about their sin and encouraging them on their righteousness. Older men are to come along younger men and to do that. Now, let me ask you, gentlemen. It's a very simple principle. Discipleship. Who's discipling you? 
Who are you letting strongly entreat, as the Word says there, your life? Are you inviting older men in the faith to examine your life and entreat you, counsel you, and bring conviction and encouragement on what they find? Or are you a spiritual island, just kind of off doing your own thing, checking in with no one, accountable to no one? This kind of man, ladies, is teachable, accountable. He pursues relationships with older, more godly men to hone his character and to sharpen his faith. When it comes to the point of courtship, dating, or whatever you want to call it, one thing you want to find out, ladies, is who are you meeting with? Who are you spending time with? Now, let me say this. It doesn't even have to be one man. It can be a group of men. Who's giving input, gentlemen, into your life? Who's speaking to those issues? Who's helping you uncover those dark corners that you want no one to see, but they're shining the light of God's Word right in there to hone your character, to sharpen your focus, to deepen your faith? Listen, when the wisdom and maturity of age are blended with the energy and excitement of the youth, an extraordinary character of faith is born. When you blend those two, the maturity of, the, of those who've been around longer than us and the energy and excitement of us as young men, when you blend those together, you can reap a character that's unstoppable and demands the world and the right kind of women stand up and take notice. Well, let me give you a test for your reality and a test for your uh, recognition as well. I hate that it came out down to this, but it's this. You've got to be fat. Faithful, available, and teachable. Let's look at those together. Faithful. If you want to be a man who is discipled and involved in discipleship, are you faithful, gentlemen? Are you faithful to be accountable? Can I tell you something? Would you look up a second? Accountability doesn't work like this. Hey, will you hold me accountable? Sure. Then the, then the person being asked, ask them later, Hey, how's it going? That's not accountability. You know what accountability is? Listen, you need to hold me accountable because this is where I've blown it and I'm going to call you when and if I blow it and I'm going to call you when and if I succeed. Accountability seeks accountability. The other way is almost a, a legalistic approach to discipleship where you're, you're holding them. Look, I don't want to hold anybody accountable who doesn't want to be held accountable by me. Do you? Someone, hey, how's your life? Well, it's great. Really? What's going on in your mind? What movies are you seeing? What, let me see your checkbook. See what you're spending your money on. Well, I don't think so. Do you have those men in your life, gentlemen? Do you have men in your life? Older men, as it says right here in verse 1. Older men who are speaking into it. Are you faithful to that? It's not going to happen by accident. You have all the powers of your flesh and all the powers of the enemy working against those kinds of relationships. And discipleship, if I can give you a little, a little definition, the best blurb I've heard is from our Pastor John who says, Discipleship is nothing more and nothing less than a spiritual friendship. It's a friendship based on spiritual realities. And those discipleship relationships, beloved, are never one way. Never one way. I meet with younger guys and they encourage me and convict me and counsel me and find issues in my life just as much as I do theirs. There's not, discipleship is not those who have made it helping those who haven't to get where they are. Discipleship is having a friendship based on spiritual realities where you're moving each other toward Christ's likeness. Are you faithful? Can I say, are you faithful to both sides of the process? Are there men above you spending time with you? And are there men underneath you who are not as far along in the faith as you are who you're bringing along? 2 Timothy 2, 2, right? Find faithful men, Timothy. Find faithful men who can then find other faithful men. Second, available. Are you available? Do you make the time for discipleship? Here's the bottom line of this. Is discipleship a priority in your life? Is it a priority? Ladies, find that out. Ask them. Guys getting interested in you, say, hey, who's speaking into your life? Don't be afraid to. Because if no one else says, you're going to be expected to. And that's not the best kind of relationship to begin on where you're taking the lead and speaking into his life. Faithful, available. Thirdly, teachable. Gentlemen, we have grown up 
in a culture that breeds such pride and arrogance that makes us try to stand so tall and look so together that being teachable is one of the most difficult things for a man to learn. And I emphasize you have to learn it. You don't start out just teachable. My sons, bless their heart, are not very teachable. They don't wake up and come to me and jump in the bed in the morning and jump up and down and say, Hey, Daddy, teach me something virtuous today. Usually I have to go find where they are and see what they're doing that's not so virtuous in the morning. Are you teachable? Do you change when you're confronted? How about this? Ladies, there's a great checkpoint for you just in noticing. Find out if he's continually putting himself in the way of truth. Listen to what I said. He's putting himself in the way of truth. You've got to do it on purpose because it doesn't happen by accident. What do you mean putting yourself in the way of truth? Does he come to church? Is he involved at the deepest level of accountability? I'd find out if, if you're interested in a guy, if he's involved in a Bible study, if he's involved in discipleship. Does he listen to tapes? Does he read books about the Lord? Does he spend time with men who know more than he does? Is he a discipled man? So, gentlemen, you need to check the depth of your discipleship as a point of reality. Ladies, you need to check out and recognize the depth of his discipleship. It's clearly right here in Titus 2. Well, there's a second quality following on the heels of that, getting actually into the text. And that's this, a cultivation of control. A cultivation of control. Now, those two words were chosen very carefully. Control has to be cultivated. No one is naturally self-controlled. Look in verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Now, as a point of context, I believe this sensible is really... It's like saying above reproach. It's just a catch-all for everything. It's just do what makes sense. That's what the word means. Sophroneo, which means self-controlled, sober-minded, doing what makes sense. By the way, ladies, we're going to come back to that word when we get to your list in a few weeks. It's in yours as well. This feature has been seen in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1 in overseers' lives, in chapter 2, verse 2, in the older men, and in the older women by inference, and the younger women by direct command in chapter 2, verse 5. It's one of the favorite words that Paul uses as a catch-all for Christian character. Be sensible. And unfortunately, this rare quality of most... This is a rare quality, rather, among most young men. Self-control and discipline are relegated to rocket scientists and athletes more than to the man of God. How disciplined are you in your spiritual pursuits, gentlemen? You want to be the kind of man that you want to be? You want to look down the, the uh, pages of Scripture and say, that's who I want to be? You've got to have a plan and a disciplined life to get there. It won't happen by accident. It won't happen by just coming and opening the Bible and kind of sleeping in church and hoping it gets in by osmosis. How about some tests for this? For reality as well as recognition. First of all, he controls his passions. You want to see if a man's self-controlled, ladies? You want to check your own heart, men? Here it is. Do you control your passions? What do you mean your passions? Are you in control of your temper? Of your temperament? Are you moody? That's a, that should be a huge red flag, ladies, if a guy is moody. And by the way, we're going to come back to that one in a couple weeks as well. Are you in self-control when it comes to sexual issues? We're going to spend a lot of time on this in the coming weeks. Are you pure in your dealings with this young lady? Are you pure in the dealings, gentlemen, of your own mind? When no one's around, where does the TV gravitate toward? Kim and I made sure we didn't have any of those kind of channels. And as soon as we thought that... Now on the network, there's stuff we have to keep turning off. When no one's around and you begin searching on the Internet, what are you searching for? What's the reality of your passion in terms of self-control? Are you self-controlled? If you won't, look up. Be sure your sin will find you what? Out. You may fake a young lady all the way to the altar. But you won't fake her forever. And then you'll have a crumbled mess to unscramble if you don't have control of your passions. You have control of your pleasures. It's another passion. You have control of your pleasures. 
the things you like to do? Do you know how to say, I've got to do that paper tonight. I can't go bowling or whatever it is. Do people bowl in, in Los Angeles? In Tennessee, that's prime Friday night pickings right there. <laughs> One of the rites of passage I had as a young man was to steal some bowling shoes. Once you did that, you were kind of a man. But you know how stupid those look? I mean, where would you wear them? Do you control your pleasures? Do you have control over that which you enjoy doing? So check for reality, gentlemen. Are your passions under control, ladies? Do you see his passions under control? A second test controls his projects. The things you have to do, your responsibilities. What do you mean? Check, girls, how up-to-date he is on his assignments. Can I give you a little insight? A guy who's way behind in his homework will eventually be way behind in his housework. You don't change. You know, I tell couples when we're doing premarital counseling, Kim and I, that when you walk up, stand before me, we say some things, you walk back down, you know what changes? Nothing except the promise that you made. You're the same person. So if you can't finish tasks before marriage, what makes you think you're going to finish them afterwards? Reading books. How many of you have a stack of books you've begun? And anyway, let's go on. Um, meeting with people. If you set up a meeting with someone, you don't change at the last minute because you found something you'd rather do. That's especially helpful if the meeting was with you, ladies. Think that through for a minute. Controlling his time, being on time. One of the pillars of my life is what my dad taught me. A leader who's on time is late. Early is on time. I live by that. If you do that, gentlemen, you're going to spend a lot of time waiting, but that's coming in a few, few weeks. He controls his passion. He controls his project. You know what else he controls? His priorities. His life is in order. And this comes down to his choices. He chooses what to do and he chooses what not to do. You can just look at the flow of the priorities in his life and see that this is a man attached to God, not just himself. Now, one idea captures this character quality, if I can give it to you. And that's, he's a decision maker. He makes good decisions. And if he makes a bad decision, he's an even better second decision maker. He's in control of his habits, his weaknesses, his tongues, his feelings, his desires, his dreams, his urges. He makes good decisions in the context of his life. That's what it means to be in self-control, to cultivate control. How you doing, guys? Ladies, are you interested in this kind of guy? Number three, another quality, a righteousness of reputation, a righteousness of of reputation. Look at verse 7. I want to be honest with the text here. Basically, he tells Titus to urge the young men to be sensible, and that's it. He says that covers everything. But then he turns from telling Titus to urge the young men to do that and turns to Titus himself. But what he tells Titus to do and who he tells Titus to be, I think, can add to our list of a godly man's righteous qualities. So his first one is a righteousness of reputation. What is that? In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. In how many things? Answer. All things. Some? No. All things. This is a consistent pattern of life. The word there for example is tupas. It means model, a type. Kalos, good, kind. It means he's consistent. He's initiator. an initiator. He's a servant. He's a model. Look back at verse 16 for a second. Talking about some of the Cretans and some of the false teachers... They profess to know God, but by their what? Their deeds, what they do, they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. This is just the opposite that he tells Titus to be. Don't be worthless for any good deed. Don't deny a relationship with God because of evil and wicked deeds, but show yourself an example of good deeds. What kind of good deeds? The word just means kind. Very nice. Let's give you a test for that. First of all, this kind of man is proven in goodness. He's proven in goodness. 
What does that mean? He's kind. Now, guys, all of us love the rough side, don't we? We're invincible. We're tough. We don't have the tender side. Well, if you don't, you're going to frustrate at least some of the women in your life. And if you get married, you'll frustrate one the rest of her life. Are you kind? You know what this means? I don't want to demean the Greek here. You know what it means? Are you nice? Can you be a nice guy? Are you generous? Are you kind to all, not just the people that you benefit from being kind to? He's proven in his goodness. You want to have a reputation that's... You know what? He's a good guy. He's a nice guy. Another test. He's predictable in his reliability. This is an example. And in order to be an example, you have to have some track record of this. He's proven. He's predictable in reliability. You know what that means? He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy to do what's right. That's what he's trustworthy to do. Proven in goodness. Predictable in reliability. You can trust him. And a third test. He's powerful in his influence. This comes from the whole idea. He's an example. An example means that other people are looking. He's an example to others of good deeds. His influence is powerful. People follow his lead. People look at him and say, I want to be around him, and I want to be like him, and I think I like him. Girls, this is the kind of guy you want to find. Proven in goodness, predictable in reliability, powerful in influence. You know, another word for influence, gentlemen, is the word leadership. In fact, I would define leadership is influence. What's your influence like? Gals, is he influenceable or influential? Do people follow him because of his good deeds or... Do they follow him because of a bad example? But somebody's following him in some way. Well, a fourth quality. Are you dead yet, guys? A fourth quality. A clarity of convictions. A clarity of convictions. Paul tells Titus to be pure in doctrine. Dan Dumas was telling me, this is how to avoid truth decay. Anyway, I tried, Dan. I tried. Give it my best. Pure in doctrine. You know, you can't really improve on the Greek here from the English. It means absolutely pure and truthful and having no error in doctrine in what you teach and what you believe. That's all it means. Can I give you some tests? Some tests for being pure in doctrine, for having a clarity of convictions. First of all, are you devoted to the truth? What do you mean devoted to the truth? You know what the word devoted is kin to? The word devotions. Now, we've kind of trivialized that word to such extent that we have devotions and it's this little fuzzy time with God with maybe a little booklet or whatever. But I like the word devotions. Are you having a time devoted to the word, devoted to the truth? You know how you can find this out, gals? You know how you can recognize this? Real easy. Ask him every other day what he's learning in his times with the Lord. And if it's the same thing every time, he's probably not spending a lot of time with the Lord. Also ask him this, and ask yourself this, guys, not what have I learned lately. That's just a book report. What I've learned lately isn't any big deal. Ask yourself, and ladies, ask this of this man, what have you learned lately that's caused you to repent In other words, did the Word have an impact on you? Are you devoted to it? Another test. Disciplined in the truth. Are you disciplined? This has to do with your discipline, your action. Do you say no to some things in order to spend the time you need to with God and His Word? Do you notice that about your quiet times? You always have to say no to something to say yes to the Lord, don't you? Devoted to the truth. Disciplined in the truth. Thirdly, directed by the truth. Do you apply it to your life? Are you, as Spurgeon says, is your blood bibbling? It just bubbles with the Bible. 
Do you know the ways and the works and the commandments of God to such extent that you can walk around in life and have a very healthy view of what God thinks about life and a very healthy view of what God thinks about you and your heart and your attitude? Are you directed by the truth? Does it make it into your life? Make sure that your theology goes further than your mind and your tongue and gets in your life. I know lots of guys who can sit around and debate the intricate points of the ordo salutis of the divine decrees. I know guys who can sit around and talk about lapsarianism and where, where the calling of God came and can debate this. And I know guys who can talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation over and over. And some of those guys never share Christ. Some of those guys don't spend devotional time with Jesus. It's got to be more than thinking and saying, and it's got to be about being and doing. You're directed. Your life is moved along like, like a sail moved by a wind. Your life is moved along by the Scriptures. And then fourthly, this is a challenge to us, defensive of the truth. Jude says we're to contend for the faith. We're to be defensive. Peter says we're to give a, a, a defense, an apologetic for the faith. Now, there's a presupposition here that you know your stuff enough to combat error. You know your stuff enough to deal with your life, right? This is not talking about, well, you know, I, I read the Bible a few times this week. This is talking about the Bible made a profound impact from what you read to how you live. And because of how you lived, it caused questions to come up in people's lives. And you can answer that with book, chapter, and verse. You know your stuff theologically. You know your stuff biblically. Ladies, watch for a man who knows the Word. This goes back to our earlier point. Watch for a man who's constantly putting himself in the way of truth. I'm going to come back Sunday nights. Why? Because preaching is going to happen. I'm going to come to both hours. Why? Because I get through inputs of God's Word. I'm going to go to Bible study. Why? To hear the truth again to be applied to my life. I'm going to listen to that tape instead of the radio. I'm going to read that book instead of watch television. I'm going to do whatever it takes to sharpen my soul because heaven and hell are at stake, not just in my life, but in the lives of the people who are going to see me live. He's defensive of the truth. His convictions, in other words, are clear. He knows the Scriptures, thinks biblically, contends for the truth. He's got a clarity of convictions. Ladies, if he can't lead his own life biblically, what gives you any assurance he'll be able to lead yours? Number five, an appropriateness of attitude. An appropriateness of attitude. This is at the end of verse 7. text just simply says, dignified. He's dignified. I love this word. I did a lot of work in the Greek on this word, and I tried to find a lot of stuff. You know what it means? He's dignified. You know what it really means? The ability to act appropriately in any given situation. That's what dignity is. You act appropriately. It's the kind of man who can burp with the guys around the campfire and wear a tux at a formal and be the same man. I can't believe he just said that. I did say that. You understand context. You're not going to go over to this girl's house for dinner the first time and go, that was really good. Are you? Are you? Ladies, listen real close to the voices around you. No! You're mature, in other words, in social skills. You're not drooling over yourself, okay? You know how to tuck your shirt in. You know what an iron is. Some of you need to go to Penny's and get some granules. So you know what matches. You know what granules are? It's for little kids. It teaches them how. If the, the colors all match up. If there's a tiger on the tag and a tiger in the pants, you can wear them. <laughs> if there's an elephant in the tag and an elephant in the... Then you can wear those too. And you match the animal. That's granules. I've been a parent too long. It's obvious. You're mature in social skills. Two tests for this. First of all, you're mentally sober. You're mentally sober. You know what that means? There's a seriousness about your life. There's a gravity. There's a sobriety. You understand the implications of living life before a holy God. That's how you can be mentally sober. 
you understand the implications of living a life before a holy God. That's what it means to be mentally sober. Now, that doesn't mean you're stuffy. doesn't mean you're like the butler in those old movies that just walks around and doesn't know how to loosen up. You can be funny and fun, and you better be. But you still have a seriousness about it, which leads us to the other test, which is socially mature. Socially mature. What do you mean by that? That's the ability, like we said, to act appropriately in a given situation. You know how to respond. You know exactly what to say. You're not threatened by the environment. You know when to keep your mouth shut. You have sense and sensibility. Where's Kim? Sense and sensibility. That's the only one I can work in, honey. I'm sorry. You're not afraid to be sensitive and not afraid to be harsh if the, if the situation demands. You're dignified. This leads into the last characteristic in this text. Last quality of a righteous man. Number six, a soundness of speech. A soundness of speech. The text says to be sound in speech. Now, before we look at what it is, look at the impact of this kind of life and this kind of tongue. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. That which is could identify the whole list, not just sound in speech. In order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. You know what this kind of life produces, gentlemen and ladies? It produces a life that's beyond and above reproach. It means that the video of your righteous life is more seen and more understood and put more gravity in than the snapshots of your failures. That's what it means. You have a life that has a pattern of being a righteous, above-reproach man. And you know where that shows up most? This is why it's last. In your tongue, in your speech. Sound in speech literally means healthy, building up. You have control of your tongue, gentlemen. And you can tell more about a man, ladies... You can tell more about a man by what he says than any other characteristic about him. More than what he wears, what he drives, what kind of people he hangs out with. You listen to what he says. Why? Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Oh, oh yeah, girls. Did I tell you that when we get to your section, it says uh, not to be, in verse 3, malicious gossips. But we'll get there. Ephesians 4 tells us to have kind words. Ephesians 4 tells us to have encouraging words. Ephesians 4 tells us to have truthful words. Honest words. Building up words. We're sound in speech. By the way, ladies, you're to be sound in speech. And gentlemen, you're not supposed to be malicious gossips either. You're not exempt just because it's not on your list. James 3 gives a half a chapter on that. We don't have time to unpack it, but if you want to go look at control of your tongue, James says if you can control your tongue, you're a perfect man. Let's have us some tests for our tongue, for our soundness in speech. It means you're careful with what is said. You're careful with what you say. Be very careful. Don't just say anything. Make sure you measure your words. Be like that E.F. Hutton commercial. When you talk, people listen. You're careful with what you say. But secondly, another test is you're also careful with how it's said. You're careful with how it's said. If you're going to rebuke or confront or even encourage, make sure the rebuking and the confronting isn't done with unnecessary harshness and the encouragement isn't done with unnecessary flattery. How you say what you say is as important as what you say. Thirdly, and maybe most convictingly, you need to be careful with what is not said. Sometimes you just need to shut your mouth. Can I say it this way? Most times, gentlemen, we just need to shut our mouths. Men, are you becoming that kind of man it's pretty serious stuff isn't it I confess to you being gravely convicted this week in studying this seeing massive areas of my life that I want the the light of God's word to shine in and change but women 
is this what you're looking for? It didn't say anything in this list about cute. It didn't say anything in this list about what he drives. It didn't say anything in this list about his occupation. It said nothing in this list about his looks. It's all about your character. And that's why we wanted to start by looking at the character of his life. How many of you have taken um, astronomy? Yeah, a lot of you. It's a gened requirement. Well, no doubt you'll hear, you've heard the famous story. The, it's in almost all of the astronomy books, the first chapter of Sir Percival Lull. He was the most esteemed astronomer at the turn of the century. And he was famous, most famous, for mapping the canals on Mars. He was convinced there were canals on the Mars planet and looking through a telescope for hours and hours, spent his whole life mapping and looking through a telescope, plotting and graphing the lines in the planet, these canals. He was also convinced, by the way, that there was intelligent life on Mars. No one even thought of trying to contradict him because he was the leading expert of the day in astronomy. But today... We know he was wrong. We've landed on Mars with a probe, and there are no canals. There's no water. There are no rivers that he mapped. There's no oceans. Nothing. But this guy spent hours and hours looking through the telescope, mapping it. What happened? Well, we know that Sir Percival Lull suffered from a rare eye disease. And when he was looking through at close range through the lens of that telescope, there was an infraction-refraction that happened where actually the light was coming, hitting the back of his eyeball, and then refracting back onto the telescope lens, and he was mapping the veins of the back of his eye. Now what's happened, guys, is that too many times, you and I, our vision is focused only back on ourselves into what we should be, and we're not looking outward into the truth, into the reality. And you can only find that in the pages of Scripture. Let your vision about who you're to be, and ladies, let your vision about who you want to have and find be connected with the truth, controlled by the truth, and only based on the truth of God's Word.